Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how researchers found ancient Neanderthal DNA in human chromosomes. Plus, today's guest James Kirby will answer a question about how musicians write songs in tonal languages. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Researchers have found Neanderthal DNA lurking in a dark corner of the chromosomes of modern humans. And this could help scientists figure out what exactly we pass down through our genes. Let me back up and talk about chromosomes for a second. Chromosomes are structures that exist in the nucleus of every cell in your body. Most of the time, they hang out in the nucleus as a tangled mess of DNA. But when the cell's ready to divide, they shape up to look like those X-shaped things you see in textbooks. When a cell is ready to divide, those long strands of DNA coil into 46 separate chromosomes. At that point, they're still not X shapes. They're more like I shapes. Those 46 chromosomes are technically 23 pairs of chromosomes, since you've got one version from each of your parents. But these pairs aren't attached to each other. Each of your 46 chromosomes makes a copy of itself when your cells divide, and those copies are known as a chromatid. Each chromosome hangs on to its chromatid by attaching in the middle, and that's what makes the shape of an X. The intersection of the two chromosomes in the middle of the X is called the centromere, and that's what this study focused on. Almost every gene you've ever heard about was found in the outer portion of the chromosome, basically the arms of the X. In this new study published in eLife, geneticists examined that intersection of the X, the centromere. The DNA in this region is full of repeating sequences that make it really hard to properly map. And it's a big deal to identify genes in the centromere because while the arms of the X can split and cross over to shuffle a parent's genes into their egg or sperm cells, the center of the X doesn't. So it could contain genes that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. In this region, the researchers figured they might find large groups of genes called haplotypes that have been inherited from generation to generation. And they did. In one chromosome, they found Neanderthal DNA that had been around for 700,000 years. The big implication here is that if scientists can tell the difference between chromosomes based on their centromeres, they can figure out whether which centromere haplotype a person inherits from an egg or sperm cell makes a difference in the traits they develop. It's possible that some haplotypes are inherited more easily or are more prone to errors than others. This is the first step in finding out. X marks the spot. That's right. We've got a listener question about music in tonal languages. This question comes from Ashley Hammer? Hammer? How do you say this? I have no idea. Who, who knows these things? Very strange. No, but this question actually did come from me. So my question was about how you can understand the lyrics of songs in a tonal language. To get some help with the answer, we got in touch with James Kirby, reader in phonetics at the University of Edinburgh. Here he is with a quick refresher on what a tonal language even is. So tonal languages are those languages where you use pitch to make a difference in the meaning of the word, right? So in, in Thai, which is one of the languages that I work the most with, if you if you say the syllable glai with a falling pitch like that. So glai means near, but if I speak it with a more neutral tone, if I just say glai, that means far. So obviously getting the pitch right is, is very, very important to getting your, your message across. We use pitch in English too, but we don't use it in quite the same way. That brings us back to my question. How could you possibly sing or understand lyrics in these languages? James told us that one major way is context, basically knowing what word does or doesn't make sense in a phrase. And another way is phonetic effect, meaning that a singer can kind of sneak in the tone of a word moving up or down as an accent or melisma to what they're singing. 
But here's the other major piece of the songwriting puzzle. The part that we've worked on the most, and it actually seems to be was the most surprising thing to learn about that was really uh, important, is what we call text-setting constraints, which is basically the principles that govern how you assign the notes to the words. And the short answer is sort of that the more the tones and the melodies match, the easier it is for the listener to understand the lyrics, and composers and lyricists tend to like to write lyrics that sort of match the, the melody. The trick is, what does it mean to match, <laughs> right? So one possibility would be to say, well, we could, we could match notes, musical notes and linguistic tones so that you basically are singing the words using a very limited number of notes. And this is done sometimes, like, so if you listen to, to chanting, you know, religious chanting of various kinds or if people are performing poetry, what they will essentially do is stylize the, the lyrics or stylize the verse and they're sort of singing it, but it's being sung with a, with a very small number of musical notes, which gets to sound a little bit monotonous. So what frequently turns out to be much more important is not whether or not a particular tone is sung on a particular note, but actually the relationships between pairs of successive notes. The basic idea is that composers try to avoid what we call contrary settings. And so put simply, that means that if the melody has a low note followed by a high note, so if you're going from C to G, the lyrics that are set to those notes should not be a high tone followed by a low tone, right? So if I want to sing, if I'm singing in Thai and I want to, and I want to sing white rice, which in Thai would be cow cow, right? So I've got a, a high falling tone followed by a low rising tone. I'd ideally like to sing that second word on a note that's lower than the first word, right? So I want my melody to go something like la la rather than la la, because if I go low to high, the listener might understand I'm trying to say cow cow, which means would mean something like rice news, which doesn't make any sense. So, the, so that's the basic that's the basic idea is that we're, when people are trying to, to compose these texts, they look at the melodies because in, in a lot of music now the melody is generally written first, and they try and find a way to compose the text in such a way that the tones of the words aren't in conflict with the direction of the melody between successive notes. And there's exceptions to this. It's clear that singing in a tone language doesn't require that you have a close match between musical and, and linguistic pitch, but it seems to it seems to facilitate understanding. And in some kinds of music, it seems to be uh, it seems to be followed more than others. That makes a lot of sense to me because even in English, we're still constrained with what words we can use in a given melody. There, there are a certain number of notes, there's certain rhythms that work better with some words than others. So this really isn't actually that off base from the way that we compose lyrics here. No, that's absolutely right. And in fact, one of the, one of the examples that, that we try and draw and point out is that this does have exactly that kind of analog in languages like English that aren't tonal. So one of the examples we think of is, uh, you know, if you were a child of a certain age, you know, you probably teased your friends on the playground by singing things like, Johnny has a girlfriend, or, you know, Mary has a boyfriend. And of course, the names Johnny or Mary, you know, don't have to be in there. You know, you can you can change out the lyrics, but even without having been taught this this song or this genre, we all know if I want to give Johnny a hard time about the name of his girlfriend, like if Johnny's girlfriend's name is Pamela, right, I can't sing Johnny loves Pamela, right? That just sounds bad, right? And the thing I would want to do is I'd want to do something like Johnny loves Pamela. And if you actually analyze what's going on there, so the you've got two measures, four notes, uh, four notes in the first measure and two notes in the second measure. 
And kind of what the principle is, is let's put the stressed syllable of the word with the downbeat of each measure, right? So Johnny has a stress on the first syllable and girlfriend has a stress on the first syllable, right? But Pamela, it's got three syllables. So I can't just assign syllables to notes left to right, right? I've got to do something nifty in order to make sure that that Pamela, that that first syllable of Pamela falls on the downbeat. And so what we end up doing intuitively without anyone teaching us to do this, right, is we create this melisma on loves. And so that doesn't sound as good as Johnny has a girlfriend, but it doesn't sound nearly as bad as Johnny loves Pamela. So in that sense, you could say, well, the, the most important principle there is, you know, don't assign an unstressed syllable to the downbeat of the measure. And in the singing and tone example, it's don't try and align successive words that have tones where the tones go in opposite directions to the melody. He also stressed that, of course, these are not hard and fast rules, and that a lot of musicians play around with our expectations by using different tones or rhythms than what we might expect, something that you can hear in some music from Southeast Asia and here in the U.S. in a lot of rap music. Again, that was James Kirby, reader in phonetics at the University of Edinburgh. And thanks for your question, Ashley. Oh, you're very welcome, Cody. Oh, hey, you're here. <laughs> oh. Before we recap what we learned today, we want to give a special shout out to Mohammed Shafaz and Dr. Mary Yancey, who are executive producers for today's episode. We really appreciate your generous support. Now let's review what we learned. We learned that DNA can hang out for a long time if it's in the right place in your chromosomes. And the composing songs in tonal languages isn't that different from composing songs in non-tonal languages. And the Johnny loves Pamela. <laughs> Johnny loves Pamela. Gross. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious.